Thank you for listening to the New Life Church podcast. If you need any information about our church or if you'd like to give online, please visit us at newlifekingman.com. Well, praise God. It's good to be in the house of the Lord tonight. Just wanted to take a moment and welcome everybody here. We're glad that you're here tonight. Uh, before we get started into our lesson, uh, just one quick announcement we want to uh, let you know about next Wednesday. Next Wednesday, we will not be having a Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, all of the high schools are graduating, and so we have multiple people going to be out for that, and so it would just be competing with something we don't need to compete with. And so next Wednesday, no Bible study. The following Wednesday, which is June 1st, really looking forward to this. We're going to do something a little new. It's called uh, Life Lessons. And so for the month of June, we're going to do Life Lessons. And so each of the pastors are going to come up and share with them, with you, uh, one of the greatest lessons that they've learned um, in their life or in their ministry or whatever. And so it should be a real interesting time. Those are always, um, those kind of classes are always a lot of fun because you get a, you kind of get a little bit different perspective and you get to hear a little bit uh, different uh, viewpoint on things. And so I could tell you that uh, with this group of people that we got pastoring this church, it should be really interesting. So, <laughs> Because I'm certain we've all learned a few things, both, both the easy way and the hard way. So, so, you know, don't take any wooden nickels, you know, don't spit in the wind, you know, you know don't pull on Batman's cape, those kind of things. Don't, don't do anything. Don't mess with Jim. You, know, you guys, you guys got to know that song. Come on. You got to know that song, right? Does everybody know where that's came? Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. Never heard <laughs> I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. We'd have to play it, but that, that's, that's for another day. Why don't we take a moment and real quick, why don't we open up in... Yes, ma'am. Unfortunately, that's the night where everything's going on in town. What? No, we're just, we're going to move on into, we're skipping it this month. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to do double duty on the night. It's going to be a four-hour... No, I'm just teasing. So. <laughs> There's some people here looking at me going, yes, we need to. We need to. That's right. So why don't we uh, go ahead and uh, open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right into this lesson. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time we have together. And, Lord, we pray that you would be with us tonight. Father, that uh, you would open our hearts and our minds, God, to receive your word and, Lord, that you would, would, you would challenge us and stir us, God, by your word, Lord, that our lives, to, to see what our lives really are in you, uh, Lord, that who we are in Christ and all that you've provided for us and all that you've done for us, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight, like I said, we are going to be finishing up our Bible study series on identity, and I want to say this again to you. The truth is, this is one of those Bible studies that... If one were of a mind to do it, which we could do it sometime, we could spend probably several months on this uh, because the identity that we are given in Christ, each facet of our identity is filled with wonderful revelation. This is a subject that for me probably started really, um, there were, throughout my ministry, out, throughout my 
time as a pastor, there have been moments and, and, and uh, glimmers of understanding. I remember teaching uh, when I first came back uh, from Needles. I was pastoring, in, Kathy and I were in Needles, and we came back to Kingman. And uh, it was my, part of my role that, that I did was, I, at that time, we had what was called adult Sunday school. And I taught the adult Sunday school class, and I did a, a I think it was a seven-week or an eight-week uh, series on identity. And I knew even back then, so that would have been in 1991. So you could see how far back this subject for me goes, it goes way back. And then, but more recently, in more recent times, since probably about 2014, this really, uh, this subject really began to turn, really began to take on a whole new level of importance for me personally uh, to understand who I am in Christ and what Jesus did for me and who, who God made me to be. There's a really interesting verse in Psalm uh, 139. It talks about being fearfully and wonderfully made. And, and that's not just talking about our body, the, our physical body. He's talking about the whole person, our spirit, our soul, our body, all that we are. Because we are much more than just the thing that we can see and touch. You know, think about that for a moment. Our soul and our spirit are much larger and much more significant even than our uh, body is. We can, uh, you know, there are certain parts of our body that we can even lose and still function. There's nothing of your spirit and your soul that you can lose and still function. And the reality is, is God has really made us. And there's a, there is a verse, of, there is a translation, I should say. It's called the 20th century translation. It was, it was uh, from the late 1800s, I believe. If I'm getting that right, I could be off on that. But uh, it, it read it this way. It, said, it talked about being fearfully and wonderfully made. And it talked about being put together in God's underground workshop. And I love that vision or that, that visual of, of, of how he said it. Because in the King James, it says, he formed me in the bowels of the earth, in the deep places, in those dark places. And so I get this picture in my mind of, of, a, a, of a really ancient-looking man that's working behind a workbench that's filled with precision tools. And there I am laying on the, on the bench, and I can see him going over every last infinite detail of my life and putting me together just as he wanted me to be. And so as I really begin to explore this subject and really begin to understand the depths of it, it really began to change me. Um, it really began to change how I functioned. Um, how I, it, it changed how I saw life. It changed how I dealt with problems. It, it changed how I dealt with people. Um, it changed how I, I dealt with my family my, and, and even myself. And I'll admit, this is an area of my life that oftentimes the devil challenges uh, because it's an area that the devil knows if he can get you off track here, he can, he can really do some damage. And like I always say, if he can't destroy you, then he will settle for derailing you. And, and many times... Christians, they remain Christian. They are fully Christian. They are loved by God, saved, forgiven, uh, brand new creatures in Christ. But for whatever reason, whether it's been because of misinformation or the lack of information 
or because of distorted information, um, they believe themselves something other than what God created them to be. And so consequently, they struggle deeply. They struggle with lots of things. They struggle with their faith. They struggle with their relationship with God, with the relationship with the church and people around them and their neighbors and on and on and on. This, I believe, insecurity, or I'm sorry, I believe identity is where is the seedbed for insecurity. Because one of the things that happened in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, one of the things that happened when, we, when Adam and Eve sinned, they became orphans. Sin orphaned them. Okay, that became mankind's identity. Mankind, and that's why through the Bible he says, I will not leave you as orphan, orphans. I will not leave you fatherless. That's why in, in Romans chapter 8 he says we can call him Abba Father, that we no longer have the, the uh, orphan spirit, that we, ha- we have this spirit of sonship. No longer are we alone and neglected because we're not. We have a Father in heaven who loves us and cares about us. And therefore, if he is our father, then we are his son. And if then a son, we have a brand new identity. And so that's why all of what I just said is why I tell you on a regular basis how incredibly important this this is. Because this can literally change your life. This can literally change the course of your life. It can change everything. And 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 the reason is 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 because identity is so critical to what Jesus did. So I want you to think about this. We, we will live, I'm going to make some statements to you. We will live in our destiny only to the degree that we live in the abiding sense of who we are in Jesus. So you will only accomplish your destiny your, to the fulfillment of it and the, fu- the fullness of it to the level you live in your identity that's in Christ. Those things, your destiny and your identity, are linked. They are not separate. They cannot be separated. Because who you are determines where you're going to go and what direction you're going to take. God wants us to walk in this world on the sense of restored identity in Jesus. We don't walk in pride. We don't walk in arrogance, but we can walk in confidence, knowing that Jesus is our Savior, knowing that God is our Father. Can you say amen? The main message that the devil has for you, the message of all fear-based teaching, the message of all religion, the message that is at the root of everything that has robbed the church of victory is this. You are not who God says you are. Therefore, you do not have what God says you have. One of the things that I do on a regular basis is that very statement I make as a declaration. I say in my prayers, in, in, in my time of prayer, I will say, God, I am who you say I am. And I have what you say I have. I declare it. And, and truthfully, I don't care if anybody hears it. I don't care if the devil hears it. The one that needs to hear it is me. I need to hear it. I need to know it. I need to embrace it. The, the, the very deception, when we are deceived, when we are deceived by who we are or, or, or about who we are, is what leads us into desperate, dysfunctional behaviors. 
This is why one of the things that I've noticed over just a lot of years of counseling is that oftentimes the dysfunction that reveals itself in adulthood was what we tried to do in childhood as coping mechanisms. So for instance, a child that doesn't get its way will throw a fit, scream, yell. It's the, it's the obligation of the parent to train that child to have self-control. That's not who you are. That's not how we act. That's not what we do when we don't get our way. But what happens is because that's lost, that child doesn't know who they are, that travels into adulthood, and it's really kind of a crazy thing to see a 35-year-old throw a fit. But I see them every day. It's really crazy to see a 75-year-old throw a fit but you can see it. Where is that coming from? Where is that immaturity coming from? It's coming because there's a distorted identity. They don't know who they are. They don't know what they have. They don't know who's in their life. Are you seeing what I'm saying? It is that belief that alienates us in our minds and in our hearts from the life of God. Look at you have right now everything. Amen. Say that with me, everything. everything. You have everything you need for godliness and this life. Right. God made sure of it. You have everything. We, we've been talking in our, uh, our prayer team, our intercessory prayer team last Monday when we were doing prayer. Nathan leads our prayer team, and he was telling us at the beginning of our prayer, he says, I really feel like something God dropped on my heart. He says, you know what? He says, we are stewards. Therefore, what that means is, that's a fancy word for manager. So what happens is we are stewarding the, the resources of heaven. So when there is a need, I don't have to come up with that. I just need to bring his, his supply to the need. And I, and I do that. See, when I know that, when I know that I have everything and I have access to everything, and I know that through prayer and through confession and through declaration that I can command certain things to come into place and say that supply needs to be there, that's being an ambassador. That's being that steward. That's being the son. I'm a son of God. I am his child. And therefore, I have rights and privileges as a child to be able to do what the Father has instructed us to do. And I have all the resources of heaven to do it. Is that, is that making sense? When I understand that. But when I don't understand that, when I think like an orphan, I always think there's never enough. It's often been testified about and, and, and stories have been told about people that foster orphans. You know, they've opened their homes so that children that, uh, for whatever reason, don't have parents or the parents are out of the picture, these children are allowed to come in for a season and these people will foster them. And they often, almost without exception, will say this, they will sit down at the table with the family and the child that's brand new, the, the, the orphan child, the foster child, will begin to grab food and put it in their pockets and hide food. They say, why? Because they have had to fight for food all their life. And they, even though there is a bounty in front of them, 
They don't know that it'll be there tomorrow. And that's how sometimes when we don't know who we are, we act. We, we see a bounty in front of us, but we wonder, well, will God show up tomorrow? Will he show up the next day? Will he show up the next day? Well, I need to, I need to, I need to conserve and I need to preserve. Or what happens, oh my goodness, what happens if there's food shortages in the world? Well, God still knows how to make food. And I'm not, and look at, I am not trying to be flippant about the conditions of the world in which we live in, nor am I here to make fun of that because I think they are serious things. But at the end of the day, whether you're a prepper, if you're a prepper and you have a shelter underground with five years worth of food and water and all of that, it's finite. There will come a day when it runs out. You hope that everything will be worked out before that goes away. Because the moment that goes away, you're going to do what the rest of us are doing and have to trust God. And we trust Him as being our Father that He's going to provide. Now, I'm not saying we don't prepare. I'm not saying that we shouldn't prep, prep, uh, be preppers or anything like that. If that's, if that's what you want to do, I, I think some of those things are really cool. But ultimately, at the end, my faith and my confidence is not in my ability to prepare. My faith and my confidence is I'm a son of God, and He always cares for His children. Always. And I'm going to trust that. Does that make sense? So again, before the foundation of the world you, and before you were conceived, God made you significant. He made you unique. And he brought you into this world on purpose for a purpose. Can you have, say amen to that? And hell has a strategy through deception to convince you that you're something you're not. Or better yet, nothing at all. Look, at one of the things that I struggle with, and I'll, I'll once again, I'll be vulnerable with you and tell you about my struggles because I can't relate really to anybody else's struggle, but I can relate to mine. And so oftentimes when I, my faith is challenged or when I'm under pressure or under stress or when I'm being buffeted, the first thing my, my natural man, my natural mind, the first thing it wants to go to is I want to figure out why have I failed and what's wrong? What's my problem? Why is this going south? Why is everybody picking on me story, Right? And then what I do is I begin to process that through and I begin to believe things about myself. I, I say, well, you know, nobody cares about me. And I use words, I use absolute words like nobody, always, everything. No one loves me. But that's just not true. My wife does. If none of you love me, my wife loves me enough for all y'all. Okay? And so um, at the end of the day, that's not a true statement. I have friends that care about me. I have people that come up to me always and tell me I love you and care about you. The problem is, is when I'm under stress, what I want to do is I want to forget about that because that really takes a little bit of effort to maintain. I have to hold the ground there. It's called fighting the good fight of faith. And so I have to hold my ground and say, no, 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 I'm loved. I'm cared for and I'm doing good. This is a moment in time. This is a moment. This is a block of time that I'm passing through. It came to pass, the Word of God said. Okay, and so I'm moving through this time, and I have to hold my ground, but sometimes it's just easier to go back to the default. 
It's easier to slip back into, well, woe is me, and I'm no good, and I'm horrible, and nobody likes me, and everybody hates me, and blah, 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 blah. And I do that on a regular basis, and I have to fight that off. I have to stand against it. And, and fortunately, I have people in my life that I can go to and call and can say, hey, man, you know, I need a little encouragement right now. I'm struggling. And then they help, help me fight that through. And so I fight that through, and I stand my ground. And so somewhere along the line, what the devil wants to do is he wants you to get off into that area where it's like, okay, you know, I'm no good, I'm lousy, I'm this. That's not true. That's not true even a little bit. You are a child of God. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if, he, if you've invited him into your heart and allowed him to forgive you, then you are a child of God. I don't care what you did. I don't care what you're doing. You're a child of God. Now, I will say this. If you're sinning, stop it. Don't do that no more. Move on. We're going to see this here a little bit as we go on. So, literally, how we see ourselves would determine how we live our lives. And what you believe, believe about yourself will af affect how you conduct your life. And in, in, in this, in many ways, is the heart of all the problems that we face when we fail this. So I want to look at a story. I want to show you this now in the Word of God. This is, I love this story. This is a story that I have spent a lot of time meditating on. Luke 15, 25 through 32, this is the story of the prodigal son. Now, this part of the story that we're going to read here is not about the prodigal, but it's about the older brother, Okay. It says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older, older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaying, slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found." Now look at this is a story about identity, okay? Because the older son, the older brother's identity through years of slaving, he said it. He told his father what he believed about himself. I've been slaving for you. In other words, in the eyes of himself, when he viewed himself in relation to his father, he didn't see father's son, he saw master slave. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Saying. And so when, he, when, he, the, when the prodigal, and this, this bugs, it bugs us. I'll be honest with you, we, we get it. We love the story because it's like, it's such a picture of the wonder of God's grace, but we don't like the fairness of it. Here this kid, he's a young punk kid, he goes to his dad, says, hey, you're dead to me, why don't you just give me what's mine and I'm out of here. And dad obliges him gives him all his money, he goes off to a faraway land, spends it on wild living, 
But when he's out of money, he ends up in the pig pen. And, the, and for a, a Jewish young man, this is lower and low. He's like 50 feet down below the bar. And he's eating the same food the pigs are. This is horrible. For a young Jewish man, this is, this is insult upon injury. Okay? But he comes to himself and he says this. Listen to what he says. Even he has a wrong identity. He says, at least I could go back to my father's house. I'm certain the servants are eating well. Maybe I could go be a servant. And he goes back thinking that what I'm going to be is a servant. I've blown it. I've blown it. I'll never be a son. I'm just nothing more than a servant. Then the the father surprises him. The father forgives him, puts a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, a robe on his back, welcomes him home, kills the fatted calf, has a party, celebrates, and restores everything he wasted. God will not only give you back what you lost, he will give you back what you surrendered. Get that. That's, that's That's a whole nother lesson. He will restore what you willfully gave up. He restores it, and then the older brother comes in from the field, and here's this party, and he's mad, and rightfully so. I'd be mad too, I think, right? Don't know. Well, it's like, you know what? How about this? How about your buddy has been cheating on his taxes for years and always gets refunds, but you somehow always have to pay? Because you're just not willing to cheat. I'm, I don't know. I'm stupid IRS. And then it's like, God, I, do you understand that I am being great? I, I, am following, I am following your word and being righteous, and I get, I have to pay for this guy's thievery. And he gets audited. And he gets audited. On and on. And somewhere along the line, what happens is our identity is challenged. That's what's happening in this story. So what does this all mean? What, what's happening here? What's happening is we're seeing bird's eye view of a distorted identity and the inability to connect with the Father. That's what happens in Christianity. You know, do you know how much I've done for you, God? Do you know how much I've given do you know how much I've, I've been righteous, I've been this, I've been that? See, and we don't ever think we would think in these terms. Because after all, the right answer, do you know the difference between the right answer and the real answer? The right answer is the one we're supposed to say. The real answer is the one we have in our heart. The right answer is, <laughs> you know what, Jesus, uh, I just so thank you for all that you've done for me. But the real answer is, man, I'm really getting tired of living beneath the wire here. I'm tired of this struggle. I'm tired. I'm tired. That is a distorted identity. That is somebody living from an orphan point of view. That is a slave. That, that's slave thinking. Do you know why the children of Israel ended up in the condition they did and why that whole generation had to pass away before they could go into the promised land? God could get the slaves out of Egypt but he could not get the slavery thinking out of the people because they still thought like slaves. They didn't trust the Father. After 10 wondrous miracles, 
to deliver them. They're delivered. They're provided for. The Red Sea splits in half. God kills the whole Egyptian army in one fell swoop. Now they're out there, and it's, all oh, you brought us out here because there's not enough graves in Egypt. That's thinking like a slave. You do know the, the walk, if you walk from, from Egypt to Israel, it's like two weeks. They spent 40 years wandering in a two-year walk or two-week walk. Why? Because they thought like slaves. They thought like orphans. They saw themselves. Listen, it shows up when they went in to spy out the land. They go spy out the land. They came back. Joshua and Caleb were like, let's go now. Don't even talk about it. Get Get on your horses and let's go. We're going to take the land. The other ten said, no, 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 no. There's giants in the land. And we are grasshoppers in our own sight. We see ourselves as grasshoppers compared to them. Do you know God had a plan? Do you know God had a plan to send hornets? Have you ever seen anybody get a bee under their saddle? You ever see somebody in a... Have you ever seen somebody get a a bee in a uniform or in clothing? Have you ever, I had a friend, I worked for a guy, his name was Earl McConnell. Earl was a really great guy. When I knew him, this was like in 1978, 77, 78, I worked on his ranch. I was his one and only ranch hand. I was 15 years old. And so I helped him fix fences. Well, one day, we are all the way out on the backside of the ranch, right along the railroad tracks where Amtrak comes through, you know. And so this cow had pushed over a a fence post, and so we're fixing the fence post. Well, Earl, he's about 83 years old, and he was standing in a red ant pile. Didn't know it. And those red ants got all the way up into his, his pants, and just, <laughs> just as Amtrak goes by, Earl is tearing off his pants and dancing around and hopping around out there in his boxer shorts and just pounding the ants on his legs. I'm going to tell you what, a red ant, that little tiny thing, can make you have a world of hurt. And God had hornets. God had hornets. You go look it up, man. They were set to go. God's army. And he would have drove every one of those giants insane. Get a bee in your bonnet, it ain't no fun. Are you hearing what I'm saying? But what happened is because they saw themselves as slaves, they no longer thought like sons. And therefore, they were completely derailed. Now, my experience in this is the way to learn how to really apply this into our life. We have to do this through relationship. We have to do this. This growing in identity is also growing in relationship. Look at John chapter 15, verses 15 through 15, or 14 through 15. It says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father, I have, been, I have made known to you. Now, I want you to think about this. Here's Jesus talking to the disciples, and he is actually promoting them. He is moving them on a scale of promotion. At one point, they were considered servants. In this section, we see him saying, you're not servants, you're friends. Once Jesus dies and resurrected, he says, now that you've had faith in me, 
your sons. Do you see how the identity is moving through? And as we are moving through identity, we are also moving through relationship. Does that make sense to you? That's the thing that has become so real to me, and that's why I spend a lot of time in my relationship. In John chapter 1, verse 12, we've read this before, but it says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God to those that believe on his name. So we go from servants to friends to children. Does that make sense? And it's done through relationship. So very quickly, I did this last week a little bit, and and these are different. I want to show you, who am I? I am a joint heir with Christ, sharing in his inheritance. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am the salt of the earth, the light of the world. I am Christ's friend. I'm a temple, a dwelling place of God. His spirit, his life dwells in me. I'm a member of the body of Christ. I I am reconciled to God, and I am a minister of reconciliation. I am a saint. I'm God's workmanship. I am his handiwork, born anew in Christ to do his work. I'm a fellow citizen fellow citizen with the rest of God's family. I am a citizen of heaven, seated in heaven right now. I am hid with Christ in God. I am chosen of God, holy and dearly loved. I am one of God's living stones being built up in Christ as a spiritual house. I am a member of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And it could go on and on and on. And it is so wonderful this evening to see the revelation of our identity because it changes everything. Now remember, I am literally just scratching the, the surface here. Every one of these things, like I said, every facet of our identity could be blown up into a picture of wonder of what Jesus has done. Truthfully, this could be the, the, the study of a lifetime. It is so Wonderful. But what I want to do for the sake of this class, and, and, and so I don't, we don't take a lifetime here, I want to go a little bit deeper into this thought before we finish up. And I want to think about these re- realities, the realities of our identity and character as children of God. So in other words, I want to, I want to reveal to you some of, the, some of the depth of what we're talking about when we look at being just a child of God. Okay, so number one, as, a, as children of God, we walk in grace and forgiveness. Now, I don't think there's a Christian around that doesn't have a modicum of understanding of grace and forgiveness. In other words, we all know that we're saved by grace. We're forgiven. We're forgiven. But I don't know if we understand quite the depth of that. And I want you to see this in another story. John chapter 8, verse 10 and 11 says this, When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now listen, this story is a story about failure. This story is a story about guilt. It's a story about shame. But more than that, it is a story about radical grace. Are you hearing that? It's a story of overwhelming mercy for someone that deeply 
needed forgiveness. Okay, you know the story. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. More than likely, she was pulled from this private passion, brought into public spectacle, thrown at the feet of Jesus. Likely, she's not wearing much because the the Pharisees were all about humiliating. Not only did they want to humiliate the woman because ultimately they had no real value for that woman, but more importantly, I think they wanted to test Jesus on many levels. The interesting thing is, is Jesus does, he does something that I think is remarkable, and, and there's been a lot made about it. It says Jesus stooped down and began to draw in the dirt. And there's been a lot of people that have tried to figure out what was Jesus drawing in the dirt. I've heard sermons that he was writing the names of the accusers. I've heard sermons where it says he was writing the sins of the accusers. I've heard people say that he was writing the, the law and then basically wiping it out. I've heard all kinds of things. The other day I was in prayer meditating on this passage and praying. I said, Jesus, would you just tell me what you were doing? Now, I'm going to say this is from God, but I can't, I can't, this is not one of those things that I could go, this is absolute because I have nothing to verify it. But I got thinking about it, and I thought, you know what, Jesus, I know what you are doing. This is a woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus, you were averting your eyes. He was doodling in the ground, going, okay, we got a woman that's half naked right here, and they want to kill her. What am I going to do? And he says, I'll tell you what, boys, you, who, you that has no sir, how does he say it? He says, him without sin, cast the first stone. That's how he says it. And then he goes back to doodling. Why? Because the the problem was not her. The problem was them. And the temptation, what the devil wanted to do was draw him into something. He was a man. What does he do? He averts his eyes. Who cares what he's drawing? He's not looking at her. Finally, when he notices all the feet are gone, he looks into her face, and he says, where are your accusers? I have none. Then go, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What a wonderful picture of Jesus handling a really dicey, dicey situation. Isn't that wonderful? That is the picture of who we are. Do you know we can operate in that? Do you know that we can bring? See, what he didn't do, he didn't ogle her. He didn't disrespect her. He didn't look at her and lust after her. What did he do? He averted his eyes. He gave her the dignity due a woman. That comes out of the heart of Christ. That comes out of a heart of forgiveness. See, it's really easy as Christians sometimes we can... can, be hard, can't we? We can be harsh and we can, we can be judgmental and we can look on things and how disgusting that is. Well, the law said she should die. They had it right. That's what the law said. Kill her. But you know what? Jesus said, I'll tell you what, you without sin, you cast the first stone. What does he do? He averts his eyes out of grace this is a woman that is, that is being completely 
restored. The master gives her her dignity back. Are you hearing that? When we are at our weakest, when we are at our most vulnerable, when we are at our most exposed, when we have failed, when we are bombarded by condemnation, Jesus speaks a simple word, neither do I condemn you. We all need to hear that, but more importantly, we need to be able to speak that. That is what comes out of the identity as a son of God. My son, Andrew, when, uh, when he was, uh, I think he was 19 or 20, I think he was 19, he had gone up to a place called Hume Lake. And this was a place, it was a discipleship program, and they had very, very strict rules about things that, you know, they couldn't have any relationships, they couldn't watch TV, they couldn't go to movies, because it was, it was a nine-month program that was focused on the Word of God. Okay, so they wanted to immerse themselves in the Word, and they made these agreements. Well, about nine weeks in, Andy gets himself into trouble, and he violates one of the rules. And for whatever reason, they decided to make an uh, uh, example of him. And they called me up and they said, we are, this was, they were up in, um, up in the Sequoias by Hume Lake. And so they said, we are taking him down to Fresno and we're going to drop him off at the airport. Whether you buy him an airplane ticket or not, it's your business. And that was the end of the conversation. And I said to the guy on the phone, I said, can I, t- can I speak to Andy? Is he there? And he goes, yeah. And so Andy gets on the phone, and I know Andy's probably, his heart is in his foot. And this is why Andy started to talk, and I said, don't say anything, Andy. I said, you just need to listen right now. I said, the first thing you need to hear is I love you. You are my son. Nothing changes that. And I said, don't worry about nothing. You'll have it by the time you get to Fresno, there'll be an airplane ticket there for you. You'll fly back to Vegas. I'll be there to pick you up. And then we'll get you home, get you back in the house, settled, all of that. And then we'll deal with everything later. Don't worry about it. You're coming home, son. Looking forward to seeing you. And what I wanted to do at that moment is because the heart of God, that's the heart of a child of God. I wanted to take that burden of shame. See, shame is based in fear. So how do you know that? They were afraid and ashamed when they sinned the first time. They went... They. They, they realized they were naked, they became ashamed, they, get, they became fearful, and they hid. Shame is a derivative of fear. And shame will always tell you what you're not. So I wanted to take shame off him. You're not a failure. You made a mistake. It was a big one, yes. But you're still valuable, you're still loved, and you're still a son. Now there may be consequences you have to live through, but you are still intact, and you're coming home. Guilt, on the other hand, is different, because guilt, we're sometimes, we are guilty, because we did it, okay? But when we are forgiven, guilt is done away with. Guilt and shame have no place in the Christian heart, nor does it have place in our conversation with others. We are to take that off, people, and I'm going to show you that here in a minute. 
John chapter 20, verses 21 through 23 says these words. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Uh, when When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now here is the puzzling part. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I am not completely sure what that means or the depth of it, but I can tell you that's pretty powerful. So one of the things I could tell you is that we, by, who, by virtue of who we are in Christ, have the ability to pull sin off people. I'm getting the light out of my eyes. Look at your eyes. You say, oh, what are you saying? We can forgive? Absolutely. Through Christ. I'm not saying we do this on our own. We are not lone wolves running around doing something. We are in Christ. I am a child of God operating in the power, grace, mercy, and all that God is. I am his ambassador. And you know what I can do? As I can come into a person's life and I can pull him out of the mire and say, you're whole because that's who I am. And that's what God's called me to do. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, now all these things... Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We are the ones that are bringing this reconciliation. Do you understand that? That's who we are in Christ. Now, number two, as children of God, we walk in compassion. Famous story, Luke 10, 33, 34, but a certain Samaritan had journeyed, uh, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set on him his own, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. This is the heart of a son of God to have compassion. Jesus, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 9, says that he saw the multitudes, that they were without a shepherd, that they were wandering around, growing faint, and he said he had compassion on them. This word compassion literally means to step into the shoes of another. It's the ability to insert ourselves into a situation and say, I know how that feels. Now, I may not have um, uh, empirical understanding of that feeling because I've never lived it, but I can certainly step in and understand how hard that is. So I have a friend in my life that I call just about every day. In fact, I think I call him every day, multiple times a day. I call him. And one of the reasons why is because I happen to know that he is alone. He doesn't have anybody in his life. Nobody calls him. But I'm his friend. And I know that. I love him and care about him. And so what I do is I make sure that I'm calling him. Why? Because of compassion. Because somebody did that for me. Jesus did that for me. He came to me. He helped me. Now, I wasn't this big bad sinner. I got saved when I was seven. But what Jesus did, it's prevented me from becoming all of it. So whether it was delivered me or prevented me, it was his power. 
And Jesus did a work in my life. And so what I'm trying to do, and I, once again, I'm not real good at it. Do I get frustrated? Sure I do. Do I get upset? Sure I do. Do I sometimes stumble and miss the mark? Often. But I am aware of my calling, as, not as a minister, not as a pastor. Everything I'm talking about is far beyond a pastor. I'm talking about my calling as a child of God. I am to be a minister of compassion to love, to have compassion, and to be there. Number three, as children of God, we walk in power. This is one of the things that's, that is, in my mind, very um, um, disheartening at times, is because I want to see us walk in power. Look at church, we were never supposed to just simply react to our environment. We were supposed to change our environment to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. What does that mean? That means that God's will be done here. Whatever it is, whatever he is choosing, we are to bring that about and we do that through power. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we think or ask, according, listen, to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. In other words, this power that we're to walk in is already at work in us, all of us. That's the identity of a child of God. Mark chapter 16, verses 17 and 18 says, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Are you hearing me? He's talking about a power that accompanies our moving through this life. Number four. Trying to speed up here a little bit. As children of God, we walk in generosity. In Luke chapter 9, 19, verses 8 through 9, it says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, or look, Lord, I, I, I gave half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from any, anyone by false accusation, I restore full fold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. In other words, Zacchaeus is having a God moment. He's having a moment with the Son of God, and everything is changing. Zacchaeus, so what happens when, he, when, when Zacchaeus gets saved, he becomes enormously generous. Children of God are generous. They're generous with their resources. They're generous with their time. They're generous with their life. Are you hearing what I'm saying? That's who we are. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or a necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, this act of giving, whatever it might be, is something that releases joy. It is, a, it is an act of release of joy. I get to give. I, I, you you when you get older, I've, I'm coming to this place where I'm beginning to realize things. There was a time when I was a young man that Christmas is about what I got. I don't really care if I get, I honestly can tell you I don't care. And the reason why is because if I want something, I'm going to go get it anyway. Number, number one. Number two, I love watching people open, the, the, my people, my family, 
I love watching them open stuff up and go, oh my gosh. And sometimes it's because, you know, we've listened. You listen to what they want and you get it for them. And it's like, it's not just the thing you got for them, it's the fact that you heard me. You were listening, you paid attention. And there's something of that generosity that releases joy in our life. And I'm, I'm learning to do that more and more and more. I, I've, been, I've been trying to build a habit of keeping, I don't normally keep cash on me. I usually use my debit card everywhere I go. And so I, but I've been trying to keep cash on me because I've been wanting to let God use me spontaneously when I'm out and about. If I see somebody and say, God says, you know what, they need 10 bucks or they need 20 bucks or they need a five or, or whatever, is, is, to, is to be able to be that, because it's so, it's, it brings a joy to my heart. That's who we are in Christ. And number uh, five, as children of God, we walk in love. And I want you to listen. This Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 18, I could spend hours on this. I, I, I challenge you to take that passage of Scripture and take every sentence and write each sentence down. Write one sentence, then skip several lines, write another, that next sentence, and then meditate on each sentence because this is packed with info. It says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. Take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. That, that's, that's a series of sermons right there. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. I'm telling you, church, if you, if you spent the rest of your life right there in those nine verses and worked on that and got that worked out in your life, you would be light years ahead of the church. John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I've loved you. You should love each other. Your love one for another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. There's not a lot in this life that proves a whole lot of anything else. But that is a word from the Lord. It said, he didn't say they would know you're my disciples because you built a big building. They wouldn't know you're my disciples because you gave a lot of money. They wouldn't know you're my disciple because you have, you know, the command of the Word of God and you can quote lots of Scripture. You, they didn't say, he didn't say you'd know you're my disciples because you know all the Greek and Hebrew definitions or any other thing. He said, they will know you are my disciples because of your love one for another. The reason I ended there on that is because that is the heart of God. And he wants that heart 
in every one of us. That's who we are. I remember years ago, my kids, when they were little, they asked me one time, they said, Dad, Jason and Andy, they said, Dad, why do we go to church so much? And I said, because that's who we are. That's what we do. That's what this family does. We go to church. We love God. We worship Him and we serve Him. And you know what? My, my, thank God my children are serving God. They're loving God, serving God, growing in God. Once again, it's not like they don't have issues. They do. They have mistakes. We all do. The point is, though, that they're pressing on. And I am so proud of them because they're catching this. They're starting to catch this. This takes a while to get under you. takes a little bit. But you know what? This, this will change your life. Can you say amen to that? Why don't we bow our heads and I'm going to let you get out of here. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the time that we've had together. And Lord, we thank you for the truth of our identity in you. God, would you continue to remind us of who we are in you? Father, that you would help us to expand our knowledge, God, and understanding of what you have created in us. Help us to walk that out in daily life. And Father, we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You have a great... Remember, remember... Thank you for listening to the New Life Kingman podcast. We can't wait to see you next week.